Hello, I'm Jerry Grant, and this is the series we're going to call Disc Jockey Confidential here on WVUD and WVUD HD1 in Newark, the voice of the University of Delaware. I'll be interviewing some of my fellow VUD jocks to find out what path they took to arrive here at the radio station. We'll talk about their earliest experiences with music and radio and how those experiences inform their own shows currently on WVUD. Today's guest is George Stewart, host of Crazy College, heard Sunday evenings on WVUD. George, how you doing? I'm fine. How you doing? I'm fine. You're a native Delawarean, right? Oh, yes. I, yes. Claymont. Yes. Let's talk for one little second about Crazy College, just, and then we'll get back to it at length later on, okay? I'm but sure. Why don't you tell the people what your program is like? But, and plays homage to all my childhood influences. At home, when you were growing up, was there music in your house? Incessant. Uh, my mom, uh, you know, we had one of those big mon- monoral... I'd love to have seen the speakers in this thing because it was it stood five, four feet high, you know, cast iron tone arm. Mm-hmm. A piece of furniture for the living room, or yeah, kind of, yeah, yeah right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mom would get you know Harry Belafonte's Calypso. It's one I remember from my childhood, and then there was Ed Sullivan presents the songs of My Fair Lady, ninety nine cents. You know, Star, it's a knockoff. I stars guess. are unknowns. Unknowns. Unknowns, right, right, right. Yeah, right for 99 yeah. cents, what do you want? Uh, my father would do the same thing. Yeah. Oh, look at these. They're hits. They're all the hits. Yeah. Uh, I never heard of them. It's not the same thing. Well, that's a different, that's a generational thing. But, you know, back then it was a songwriter's medium. When with the Beatles and, and people after that, it became a performance medium. I agree with you. Yeah. Was there live music in your house at all? Did your mom play the oh, piano no. or anything? No. No? no. Okay. Okay. So it was on was on the Victrola. And how about the how about the radio in your house? Was there radio in your house? Oh, we never listened to it that I can recall. I tell a lie. Mm-hmm. I can remember as like I would have been four or five, listening to WDEL on the Fourth of July, broadcasting the fireworks. <laughs> <laughs> Dad, can we please go to see the fireworks? That's pretty good. That's, That's pretty, pretty amazing. Good. Yeah. Uh-huh. So we, you know, there must have been radio on. And you know, I remember songs like <laughs> "Yellow Bird" and "Lemon Tree" and things like that. That I didn't know what they were until later on, and I'd remember this song. And finally, I would find out it's you know, "Lemon Tree," very pretty. You know. You mean you'd hear that on the radio? Yeah, right. What, was it, was and it, there was a radio in the car. What was it DEL? I mean, for instance. I have no idea. You had an idea. I'm a okay. four-year-old, you know? Uh, okay. I think you're older than I am, aren't you? But I was we, born in 1950. That's a different show. Yes, well, then you are. Yes, yeah, right. But, but, but what? By a month? <laughs> anyway, so... Um, I'm not ashamed of my age. Right, it right. proves I'm a survivor. Well, I would listen to, uh, I mean, our DEL played in our house all the time. It was the it was kind of like the punishment for kids and stuff. Every morning was like DEL. Now, of course, I'm talking about later, like when I was eight or nine or something, it was like, oh, call for cash jackpot and, you know, and I guess an occasional Sinatra record or something like that. But then they would play some hits. For instance, I remember Walk Right In by the Rooftop Singers. Walk oh, yeah, Right yeah. In. You know, and like, oh, man. And Mom loves that record, and I kind of like that record. I, mean, I didn't even know it was a record back then. I knew it was... On the radio or whatever, you know. Anyway. So your family would play the radio, but the shows were more like a variety show, a lot more talking than we were used to and games and things like that? Oh, yeah. It was the call for cash jackpot. It was in the morning. It was to get time and temperature and that kind of stuff. Still the function they serve. Right. Still the function it serves today. Right. right. Uh But there would be some music and... uh, 
uh, like I say, no, I remember a lot of novel. I think like Running Bear got played. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? That kind of stuff would right. get would get played. Okay, and well, Doris good. Day and everybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. the not un, un, not unsurprising mix. Um, right. It was a top forty or probably a top twenty radio station at that time. Yeah, which I th- when I came to VUD when it was WHEN, there was a box of forty forty fives, and that's what we were supposed to play. And the big breakthrough that I initiated was I, I was going to do a show that played LPs and a lot of English imports. Imports. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Well, because in those days, if you think of college as preparing you for a job, it was if you want a job in radio, you're going to play these, this, probably the same box of 45s for the next 30 years or right. so. Anyway, so yeah, I get you. I get you. Do you remember hearing live music the first time you heard live music? No. It could be marching bands or it could be. Well, we would do the parades, the Claymont mm-hmm. Parade at you know Labor Day and Memorial Day and Fourth mm-hmm. of July. So there would be that. Right. You know, um, my over at my grandparents' house, the Stewarts on the paternal side, mm-hmm. that there was a piano, and they would, you know, after Sunday dinner, they would sit around, and my aunt would play, you know, songs, and people would sing, and mm-hmm. I'd fall asleep on the sofa. Religious or popular or popular, popular. Yeah. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, my 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 grandmother would play like some religious stuff. Well, it comes from um, the you know the twenties and thirties. One of the things you did was make your own entertainment, right? Until it became commercialized, and you listened to somebody else doing what you used to provide for yourself, right? And it's why the sheet music, uh, the, the sheet music traditions still dominate today. That songwriters always get paid whenever the song gets played, and that's just starting to change now. We should say we're in twenty seventeen now. In case you're listening 50 years from now. So how about were there, uh, so when the records, what was the first record you bought? Actually, here's a surprising story. Let me tell you this story. Mm-hmm. I'm going through the, the 78s in my house and my parents, for some reason, bought Point of Order by Stan Freeberg, which is a subversive anti-McCarthy song. Nice. I can't, you know, it's, it's like, I would never assume that my family's politics was anti-McCarthy. They didn't, I don't think they vote for, voted for Kennedy, and I suspect they voted for Eisenhower and that ilk. It was, those were different huh. times when the Republicans and the Democrats were not hated oppositions the way it is now. And these records around your house, these were mainly LPs, 33 and a third? No, these are 78. 78s. Yeah. Okay, okay. We had that. We had Sunday Driving by um, Jerry Lewis, very annoying song. I've heard I you love. play that. Yes, yes. And uh, and the uh, Spike Jones, um, Happy New Year, and all I want for Christmas is my two front teeth. Mm-hmm. And then a lot of nondescript stuff that I didn't keep. Oh, another one that they had was Beatrice K doing uh, "Don't Go in the Lion's Cage Tonight." Our family was nothing if not eclectic. <laughs> and one of the LPs we had is a great one which I finally got on CD 50, 60 years later, The Happy Banjos, produced by Noreen Paramore, the British producer. And it was just really great banjo music. Whoa. Yeah. Whoa. Red Sails in the Sunset and uh, uh, Chinatown, My Chinatown, you know. Whoa, Red Sails in the Sunset, so it was sometimes slow banjo music. Yeah, uh uh-huh. And it it had a, a chorus, a male chorus, and a lot of whistling for some reason. 
<laughs> well, you know, banjo music can be boring, but you add whistling, and, and there you go. You've, well, actually, it's great you've banjo. Me. I mean, <laughs> there's no such thing as a bad I instrument. Know. I, know. I know. Bagpipes can be cool. Ocarinas. Okay, right, right. Especially I, when you multi-track them. I think I just have been hanging out with bluegrass people so long that there's just a million banjo jokes wherever you go. Oh, I know. So that's where you yeah. can't help it there. No. I know personally, you, that you've often said that you first really got into pop music through television. I, I was addicted to the Merv Griffin show in the early 60s. Well, that was a great Luckily, show. there's a cure for that now. No, I know what you mean. I, I watched all the time. Yeah. So I mean, it was, right. it was in New York, and they would get Brother Theodore on there, which is why I got interested in Brother Theodore. And um, Eddie Lawrence would come in. You know, the last 15 minutes was the best part of that show. And, you know, they had Warhol on there and uh, um, Salvador Dali. I mean, they had Ultraviolet, all the yeah. um, all the nut jobs, basically. <laughs> and they were great. So, um, Oh, and, uh, one, and they had on one time um, the Geese and Slaw Brothers, who put out a really good album on Capitol. I think it was Capitol, one of the mainstream labels. And I bought it. And, I, and explain who they were briefly. And they were not brothers. Not, no surprise there. And one guy was tall and never spoke. And the other guy was uh, the leader and played the mandolin. And the other guy, I don't know, I can't remember what instrument he played. And they sang quasi-novelty tunes that were also good music. I don't think Carl Goldstein would turn his nose up at the music. He would at the lyrics, probably. Our bluegrass, uh, one of our bluegrass jocks here on WV. Actually, Carl would probably embrace the humor of it, too. Oh, yeah. I'm I'm overstating. You're putting out the Geezer Slaw Brothers as your first record that you purchased? Either that or the best of Spike Jones. Uh, So these are LPs you're buying? I mean, Spike Jones and the Geezer Slaw Brothers? Those were LPs, yes. We're talking like 61, 62, when I was 11. We only had 45s in our house because we only had a 45 player. I I think there's kind of an economic route to all that. So how about your first, like, pop or rock record that you bought you remember what would it be i don't know uh, you know uh, well, I, remember, I remember you telling me in the past that you were really influenced by the monkeys right which is kind of jumping a number of years there I, they're not putting oh. out junk oh right and the players were professionals yeah, they right. were great oh yeah sure yeah. sure and the lyrics were not yeah, I, didn't, I wouldn't say they were the equals of the, the beatles but for a time there economically they were they had a commercial on every week for their latest top 40 hit Right. Oh, yeah. They sold a lot of records for sure. Yeah. If you remember uh, getting the VJ albums and it would be, which is the better band? The Beatles versus the Four Seasons. Yeah, it's like, sure. Oh, yeah. No argument there. We can wrap this up pretty quick. <laughs> it's because they were both on VJ. Well, that was the true reason why they were done that way, because VJ only owned like six Beatle tracks there for a while. Right. But what makes it really cool is VJ uh, was owned by African Americans. That's what really oh, makes it, it interesting. Yes, oh, right. I, didn't I mean, know that. the meat of their roster was like Jerry Butler and Betty Everett and uh, and John Lee Hooker was on VJ and all kinds of stuff. But then they signed up this weirdo <laughs> English group yeah. for you know six sides or whatever, and they happened. To, I don't know how the Four Seasons got on there, but anyway. Wow. So you were buying you were buying Monkeys records, I assume. Right? Yeah, the you know the Monkeys mm-hmm. and. Uh, Herman's Hermits and All right, so, a lot of names that I w- I'm glad that I don't recall. Yeah, right. I know. I look at my 45 collection and I think, oh, man, I, I remember actually I did buy that. Right? Yeah, yeah. Susan by the – who did Susan? Remember Susan? By uh, the Buckinghams, I the think. The Buckinghams. It was a slocky song and in the middle was a psychedelic break. A, f- a freak out, right? Yeah, yeah. a freak out. <laughs> did half the radio stations cut out? 
Right, right. There was a radio edit for for people, right? But it did. But we heard it though. Some somebody played it. I right, mean, we right, we yeah. heard it somehow. Yeah. I remember it being on there. And like Wham's and whatever would play a a thing through the whole song. Wham's exclusive. Wham's exclusive. Uh, yeah. yeah. So that the so ILM couldn't steal it from them if they got it first. So I assume you're not listening to DEL anymore than in '65 or '6. What are you listening to? '65 and '6. I'm li- listening to ILM, DEL, and. Uh, I believe in God. Right. Wibbage. W I B G. I B G and uh, oh, uh, D, uh, Wams. 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 Those were the two I bounced back and right, forth. Right, right, right. There was you know. no real FM right. until 67, 68. What happened was they did AM in the 20s. Um, almost immediately, this engineer said, Hey, you know, I got a system FM, it's much better. And RCA said, Yeah, that's a great idea. We'll buy that from you. And then they buried it because they didn't want to get rid of all their AM equipment. So FM Mm -hmm. and AM were, FM was a stepchild that nobody paid any attention to. Right. It was dentist office music, basically. Right. Uh And but usually it was a simulcast of the AM station, and the FCC realized this is a waste of a frequency, and they said in like sixty four, sixty five, as of this date, you have to do a separate program. And they also required that all radios be able to get AM and FM at the same time. So now people have FM radios, and there's programming on FM that is not on the AM. And the station owners are going, I don't want to spend money for FM programming. So they'd walk out in the street and say, you want to do a radio show? It's 20 bucks in it for you. And that's how underground radio started in in the in 67. Well, I think actually in Philly, right, it was DAS's he got his son to have a show, didn't he? Uh, Other way around. It was a station where you could buy an hour of show and play whatever you wanted and sell the time yourself. So you'd have the Polish hour and the right. Yiddish hour and things like that. Right, right, and right. Mm-hmm. It, the father did two hours of classical at noon, and the kid said, I want to do underground music at midnight, and I'm going to call it The Abyss, and I'm going to be my father's son. And he started playing really cool music. And, you know, that's where I heard Lothar and the Hand People and um, Salome Sinclair and the Mother Bear and uh, all these other light classics that nobody even remembers at this point. Well, I, remember, I always use the example because I went a different way that everybody kind of abandoned AM radio in 66, 67 around then. The great majority did go to FM underground kind of right. stuff. A few of us decided that we had really liked all the black music on AM radio for so long. Gee, there's a black station over here. Like in this case, again, WDAS AM was kind of hard. It was a sun up to sundown station. So it would actually go click at 6.15. It would go click and it would go, you couldn't Dark. get it anymore. It was yeah. gone. It right. Was off the air. And, but we would just decide to listen to that all the time, you know, just, and well, what them. we denigrate mm-hmm. AM radio, but mm-hmm. the nice thing about AM ra- radio at that time was it was democratic. And there was no judgment between, you know, this is better than that. Oh, sure. So you'd hear the four tops and you'd hear Herman's Hermits next because the idea was least objectionable programming. You didn't like that song? Well, you're going to like this one because it's the exact opposite. And you'd hear Roger Miller. You'd hear little right. Jimmy Dickens do May the Bird of Paradise yeah. Fly Up Your Nose. Exactly. And whatever was, it was truly popular music. Whatever right. was selling yeah. or whatever labels were bribing the disc jockeys, that's what got played, <laughs> yeah, right. you know, so... Did you do anything with radio in high school by any chance? Was there, we didn't have You radio. didn't have a radio station, I right? did have a wall and sack tape recorder. And um, before high school, I guess middle school, we would record f- faux radio programs like Sherlock Holmes parodies and things like that. Oh, yeah? Yeah. You and your friends? Yeah. Uh-huh. I'd mm-hmm. write a script up, you know, and would 
the Hound of the Blastervilles, I remember one. Which, <laughs> <laughs> All right, so you're in high school, so but you started out with listening to DAS FM. Then did you switch over at some point uh, to MMR? Well, some at some point, like 67, 68, we got a mono FM radio, and then it was MMR and DAS. I like DAS better because mm-hmm. it was more off the wall. I mean, my father's son would, you know, tell you the cost of a kilo over the air. I mean, it was just you know, wow. Like, okay, FM at that point, the underground stations created a, a, a tight little counterculture. I mean, you could feel that the culture was changing. Of course, the culture is always changing, but this was a huge change. Driven by economics, we were the biggest mass. We were baby boomers, and we're now 17, and we had disposable income. And, you know, they're going to pander to us. Always follow the money if you want to follow aesthetic decisions making, you know. So then you make your way to the University of Delaware. Right, and before I even started as a student, they were having a um, an interest meeting, and I went down and said to the program director, "I got a bunch of albums from England. Why don't I play them?" And he said, "Oh yeah, sure, okay, great." Who was was it? Dick Idolot was the big broadcaster, right? Right. His son Dave Dave. Idolot was Mm -hmm. running the station at the time. Mm -hmm. He would come in in a coat and tie. He did a show, and he would light a candle in the studio and go. Hello, you. I'm talking only to you. And he would play Montivani records at night. Wow. So that was WHEN that you're talking oh, about? Oh, yes, yes. Right, okay. So they finally put us on after a big so you, you would listen. you had listened to WHEN when you got here, I guess. No, I couldn't have. I'd never heard mm-hmm. the station because it was a carrier current, which meant you could only hear it in the dorms. And what, what kind of stuff do you think you were playing back then? Oh, mo- the Move, the Kinks, the Beatles, uh, the Rolling Stones, uh, Gentle Giant. If it wasn't selling, it was on side two. Side two. It was called side two. We should mention that. Two. Then uh, around 75, we became FM. And then 77, we got a power increase. Or the, it may, I may have these dates wrong, but I've had so many dates wrong. That <laughs> it's a different story. Yeah. So somewhere around 77, they, we went FM, we were 100 watts, we played, we were out on the air, people could hear us in the community. Community members came aboard then, um, uh, I think that's when Carl started, that's when you started, right, right. 77, you were actually approached right. by... Ron Whitehead. Right. right, that's who I was trying to think of. Okay, yeah. And right. he basically went around... He the, reached out, yeah. reached out and got... Bill Chambliss doing Scratchy Grooves, got you doing uh, Hip City Part 2. Neil Payne. Neil Payne, yeah, the big band show in the mist. So that's when the station began to live up to its charter, which is it's a community student hybrid. Uh, you had a record store called I Like It Like That. I was managing the State Theater. That would have been 79. You were kind enough to lend me your records. We would have no access to otherwise the Sex Pistols and... Um, uh, Buzzcocks and all the uh, Clash. Remember when we first heard Elvis Costello's debut album? Okay, I really remember strongly hearing the Ramones album. We just all gathered around and said, listen to this. You're on the cutting edge of that. We, we should mention the Velvet Underground. I think you were the first person oh, play to play them all the time. To play them all the time. Since they're playing Sister Ray over and over again as I drew cartoons for the underground newspapers. You did not want to be my next-door neighbor in those a town court apartment. I remember you playing Kevin Coyne, and you're going, nasty. 
Nasty. <laughs> Margarine Nasty. razor blades. Oh, God. It hasn't it, aged too well. Anyway, <laughs> anyway. And that's also the time of George Thurgood, 76 right. to that right. time, right. which is, he was never underground or, we see now that he was kind of a punk and, uh, right. you know, and a, a, a lo-fi, whatever you want to call it, a homemade kind of rough right. sound. There was right. records and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. He wasn't in with the, the, the punk movement per se, but... He was the godfather. You know, he, he belonged there. Yeah. Right. And Tommy right. Conwell, I mean, that, uh, and the Young Rumblers, they, they right. were a great band. So let's stick with you for a little bit more. So you, at some point, move up to WHYY? And oh, yeah, yeah. There was a, they were doing a lot of creative things there. And then being an NPR affiliate, when NPR decided that they were taking over all day parts and doing news all the time, we all got canned. And then right. briefly, you were you syndicated. Can you, can you give me a year uh, about your novelty show? I, which I has always seem, been called Crazy College, right? Yeah, at yeah. 84, we got Heaven 17 and all that stuff. And I'm playing it. One day, I said to myself, self, I don't like this music. And I was th- 35, and it's like, I don't want to end up like Ed Shockey playing music I don't like. I wanted a show I could grow old in gracefully. And some reason, I thought that was crazy college. <laughs> and the concept became, Side 2 was always a live show, local, kind of rough-hewn. Crazy college was going to be produced on tape with production values. Right, right, and, right, right. And, that, and there was technical reasons to do it. Well, I was going to say there's almost reason to do it because you play some really old recordings. Right, which, and that's exactly it. Yeah. But then that opened up. Eventually, Crazy College, after WHYY or maybe during, gets syndicated also? That was actually syndicated down here at one point. We did a half-hour version. There were other shows. I did a kid's show on at VUD and all kinds of Oh, I'm sorry. Ad- well, no, nope, it lasted like 13 weeks because I wasn't getting up at 9 o'clock on a Sunday morning to play it. Mm-hmm. I dragged you into some winners of a kid's show called Dr. Dinner's Fun House and um, Ricky's Restaurant. And Ricky's Restaurant, we spun that off. Some of that. Yeah, I remember yeah. some of that. I remember definitely the... Uh, Baked potato was well, was, yeah, yeah, that was, was the Uber project. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just Wait. call us up on your phone. <laughs> Years before Uber came around, yeah. right? Well, right. but we were before um, Saturday Night Live, and we were doing right. Uh, well, we weren't doing Saturday Night Live because we were never live, right? But, but we, we, we were, were doing commercial parodies and things like that, right? It, that was it was inspired by um, basically Firesign Theater and Ernie Kovacs, you know, and that was so um, right. Right, 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 right. We stand on the shoulders of giants. <laughs> and the problem is they're all hunchbacks. Well, I, when HYY dropped me, DIY picked me up in Allentown. Crazy College gave me a venue to talk to people whose work I really admired, like Soupy Sales and Dayton Allen and Brother Theodore. I mean, I basically got interviews with people that nobody else bothered to interview, and they are culturally important at this point. I did a lot of interviews with Stan Freeberg and uh, Tom Lehrer. So you're still in the air as we speak in 2017, and, oh, good. Um, and I'll come down Sunday. And, uh, <laughs> and so, what's your? What do you think your audience is for Crazy College? Old at this point? people. It's been a Seriously? real problem. Yep. In '84, you could do a Soupy Sales joke, and people would say, "Oh, I I love Soupy Sales. He was great." They would know who you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Nobody knows Soupy Sales anymore. It, right. It was an oldie show to begin with, and now it's just an archive. It's very depressing. Right. And there are no novelty tunes anymore. 
and the humor is so foul mouth anymore. You can't play anything new yeah. on it. I, it. It's easy to get a laugh by being crude, but you know, and you got to save your obscenities for when they'll actually have some impact. Yeah. It's past being offensive. It's just boring. You know, it's well, just, that's it. Know. I mean, it's, right. it's mm-hmm. like saying so at the beginning of a sentence. It means absolutely nothing. Uh, well, I'm kind of amazed in general that, you know, radio still survives. We are in the death throes of broadcast radio. Early on, it was personality-driven radio. Underground radio still had that element, but we tried to deny it. And it's a parasitic medium. We live off of the art of somebody else when you're a DJ. Well, sure. What we do is create organic segues that supposedly enlighten and enhance the music or show trends or create themes. Whenever you're listening to this, I hope you have your own little underground scene where you can feel the excitement of creativity. Thanks, George. Thank you. You've been listening to Disc Jockey Confidential here on WVUD. These shows are part of longer interviews I conducted over the past few years, so some of the times and dates mentioned are not current. I hope to have the complete interviews available as podcasts in the near future. Tune in next Monday at 8.30 a.m. for another edition of Disc Jockey Confidential.